Did you know Higher Ed's premier tech conference, Elucian Live, is almost here. Join industry leaders in New Orleans, March 26th through 29th. Discover insights and game-changing solutions to unlock possibility and drive student success. Register at elive.elucian.com. Epic. Three higher ed authors, 100-plus college and university presidents, dozens of actionable insights for academic leaders. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, is now available on Amazon. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you on another episode. For those of you that have picked up the book, Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, first of all, thank you for doing so. Um, we are day by day humbled by your support of the book and the project as we interviewed of took to book, as they say, over 125 college and university presidents, including the one I'm going to talk to you today, including one of the 125 is here. Um, one of the things you can do to help us, because people are always emailing me, asking me, what can we do to support you? The book, add up. Right now, it'd be huge if you go to Amazon and write us a review of the book, if you like it. And if you don't like it, still write us a positive review, because that's how you can help us. Writing us a negative review does not help us. So don't ask how you can help and then write us a bad review. That makes no sense. And I know that the listeners here make a lot of sense because I know many of you personally. So personally help me help you by giving me a review. And my uh, co-author, Kate Colbert, on Amazon, of course, buy a book if you haven't and listen to the podcast if you haven't. I'm not going to tell you what else to do. You can listen if you want. You can buy the book if you want, but if you don't want to, um, that's okay too. I still love you and I appreciate all the support from all those across the world we're going to be at some conferences coming up here this summer. Um, and we're going to be speaking at one and he's a new, I call him a new friend. I think he's from the Italian. He's got a little Italian behind his name too. Um, he's in, he's in Florida. What said with an a, if you're from New York, you say Florida with an a, he says Florida like that. Here he is. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the executive director of the United States distance learning association. He's Pat Casella. Pat, welcome back. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Scott, nice to meet you. See now, oh, oh, wait, before anybody says anything, this is what happens when I have first-time guest co-hosts on, which you are my first-time guest co-host. You blow the whole guest intro because I hadn't introduced the guest yet. But this is why EdUp is so good because we leave in all the mistakes because that is what we do as people and that is what we do in higher education. We make mistakes. And we serve students in the end. They don't need to see our mistakes. So we leave all the bits, all, all those things in. But Pat, you're 0 for 1. We're starting out at 0 for 1. That's okay. All right. Fantastic. Uh, we're still going to, you're still in the game though. You're still in the game. I'm going to bring my guest to the table quick before Pat makes any other mistakes. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. He's Scott Pulsifer. He is the president of Western Governors University. Scott, welcome back to the EdUp Experience. Joe, it's uh, great to be back. Uh, Pat, it's great to be with you as well. Uh, I don't mind the mistakes. Uh, Joe clearly doesn't either, but it uh, certainly makes it real. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate uh, that would be actually impressive if anyone could have guessed that I was going to be the, uh, uh, the, the guest on the podcast just by him saying, nice to meet you, Scott. I imagine there are several other Scots in higher education that you likely have. So 
It's very, it's very possible that there is, but there's only one Scott Pulsifer, president of Western Governors University, and that's you. And by, by, by the way, um, for anybody who has ever listened to this podcast and started with us on a journey a long time ago, by the way, what's really funny now is mistakes. After I gave Pat all that garbage about making a mistake, I forgot to turn on a button in Zoom that allows the sound effects to come through on the... <coughs> Um, computers of my guests. So there were applause buttons that you probably didn't hear or maybe didn't hear. And then I've hit, been hitting other buttons that you probably didn't hear. And I've been laughing and you haven't. See how that works? So we're going to leave that mistake in too. Amazing. You probably heard that one a little better. All right. So um, Scott was the very first president that came on the EdUp Experience back in, I think, April of 2020. And we were literally one month into pandemic realignment or whatever you want oh, to call yeah. it. And what made that special about that time was the first president we interviewed, you, Scott, with a university engineered to be pandemic proof and simultaneously kind of opening the floodgates that it's okay for a president to come on a podcast and really <laughs> talk about their business, which was great for the <laughs> experience. So yeah. welcome back. And how are things going? Uh, there, thank you uh, for that welcome, and uh, things are going just uh, just great. Uh, I would uh, hesitate to say that we designed to be pandemic proof. Uh, uh, I don't. If we knew a pandemic was going to be uh, be coming, then we would have probably been one of the best progno prognosticators out there. But we You're didn't. Engineered uh, for it. Engineered for it. I think yeah. in many ways, like we certainly. Uh, we designed and engineered for scenarios or circumstances and, and needs of our students that a pandemic amplified. That's the way I'd put it. It's like those needs ah. became amplified significantly because of the pandemic. And uh, when we were designed and engineered to meet those needs and, and deliver that, that value proposition, uh, the pandemic certainly uh, positioned WGU in a way that uh, we did not anticipate ourselves. And and I think uh, most in the industry are also discovering that uh, the delivery mode of online is incredibly beneficial. Even if the first iterations for many institutions occurred during the pandemic, even then the students were discovering the benefits of flexibility and the personalization that afforded them. And so it was, uh, it was just kind of nice in many ways to see how that catalyzed innovation at, at a pace that would had not previously been seen. Uh, so, here we are, mostly on the other side of that, uh, but with a lot of heightened now expectations for value and for for ex, uh, for experience and affordability and so many other things from students that that were ar arguably mostly on the other side of that pandemic and now in a much better position than we were before. Not, that's speaking not only of WGU but as the sector as a whole. Nailed it. Talk a little bit about the last three years recap that for me in one minute scott no um <laughs> but you go th through the pandemic we'll fast forward through that because i think that conversation has has been had appropriately now we get to the other side of this we know that there's this value conversation it's at the it's at the center of every thing we are saying and doing around higher education right now and there's really interesting things happening sides almost being taken where um, you know education degreed education doesn't have as much value go through the skills pipeline the 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 degreed institutions saying don't go through the skills pipeline you're not going to get what you need you're going to need the degree later some in-betweens wgu has kind of 
wrapped itself around this conversation uh, in a lot of ways. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, the divisiveness that exists and really a lot of confusion for a student on what to do? Yeah, I think uh, taking the perspective of the individual, the student, uh, and whether that is a prospective student or a current student, um, I I believe the data, uh, and that data is that it shows that that three quarters of them are actually attending a post-secondary program or, or are currently enrolled in a post-secondary program with a very explicit intent to get a better job or a better opportunity. Um, that is, I think, fundamental to the value proposition of education, is that if you acquire the knowledge, skill, and ability in this educational pathway, it will enable you to acquire an opportunity that will allow you to advance your life in a way that you previously could not. Uh, I think that's core to our also societal belief, meaning in the US, I think even the underwriting of it by the federal student aid model is on the assumption that those who acquire education are in fact advancing their opportunity and they're acquiring that opportunity uh, such that uh, it is about time, arguably, that we have a greater conversation about whether that value proposition is being delivered. We at WGU talk about that as the promise of education. And we are certainly endeavoring to reinvigorate that promise, not just for the privilege, but for every individual that education fundamentally has to be an engine of mobility, uh, both economic and social mobility. And so I don't care whether you're an existing institution delivering degree pathways or whether you're an emerging and alternative provider that's you know, introducing micro-credential and other credential pathways. Regardless of what you're providing, that pathway actually does have to result in opportunity. Otherwise, the core value proposition of being an engine of mobility is like it's not going to uh, not going to work. And so, um, I would argue that historically, uh, that it has been the truth that that uh, degrees have been uh, a credential that affords mobility. In many ways, it's provided optionality to individuals, even if the degree they got wasn't directly relevant to a profession they were gonna pursue. It's still presented a uh, value uh, in a way that, uh, that there was probably few alternatives out there. Now, having said that, the costs of that, the accessibility of it, uh, the success rate of it, like, it's calling into question a lot of that value proposition. And many individuals are starting to wonder whether is there an alternative? Yikes! And yeah, and there are certainly many who are starting to say, you know what, the cost of that one and uh, is not gonna be affordable for me. And I see that an increasing number of employers are seeking those who might have credentials or certifications in certain uh, fields. Uh, that I can still get a great job that's going to be earning me $50,000, $75,000 or more a year. And I can do that in one year at a cost of $20,000 or less, hopefully. And that may be a better alternative than, than spending $100,000 to get a bachelor's degree over four years and, and hoping that at the end of that, that it all works out. Um, and so I think that regardless, again, of whether it's a new and emerging credential pathway or an existing credential pathway, we have to still go back to the core assumption that a student has, which is I'm doing this so that I can get a better job and advance my economic and social mobility. And we should be holding ourselves accountable to delivering on that promise. I like your style, dude. Um, a lot said there. And Pat, you know, I know you've been waiting to jump in. Now it's your turn. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Um, I, I noticed, you know, that uh, Western Governor, one of the things that you had there was um, a big focus on data-driven learning, right? And I, I did uh, research you a little bit, Scott. I do admire your background because it's very similar to mine, VP of product management. You know, you worked in the technology sector for a long time. Can you dive into this data-driven learning a little bit more? You know, what are some of the stats that you're actually looking at that are really important to the university? Before you answer it, let me just get prime it. Ah. Well, hold, hold on, let me just prime this because I, I have the right sound effect for it. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Okay, so now go. There you go. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, it, Pat, it starts with this, I think, premise is that we believe that every individual has inherent worth and that they have different approaches and styles and, and ways through which they progress through a journey. Uh, we're providing an experience around learning and the acquisition of knowledge, skill, and ability. We make no presumption that every individual somehow is going to go through that in the exact same way. Um, and that means that we are, our primary obligation is to figure out how to personalize and adapt how we deliver that learning uh, so that we increase the probability that every individual can succeed. For us to do that, it fundamentally requires or depends upon understanding how individuals are experiencing what we're delivering. And so we have data on everything from, uh, I would put it simply like this, progress, persistence, completion, and uh, return for graduates. So when we're looking at the journey for students, we're looking at, you know, what is the, you know, what is the pace at which individuals are traversing their particular courses? You know, what is the engagement rate they have with the different uh, learning resources that are part of that course? What uh, particular content areas are, there act are they actually utilizing at which higher rates, et cetera? We look at pre-assessment performance and how, you know, which questions are presenting more challenges, which, which ones are actually uh, showing good success rates on. We look at, uh, you know, first attempt pass rates of assessments. You know, and all these things, what we're looking at is just trying to understand how different individuals are actually moving towards proficiency so that we can start individualizing the experience from an instructional standpoint, mentoring standpoint, et cetera. We then look at course completion rates, the pace of course completion rates in a term. We look at how individuals are progressing through that term so that we know are individuals progressing at a pace that's right for them. Uh, so that we even look at what is the percentage of students that are completing a term or the set of courses at their personal pace, knowing that not everyone has the same pace. And so we're looking at all this data, and the reason we're doing it is we're trying to figure out what is the right mentoring approach, what's the right sequencing of courses, what's the right set of learning resources, you know, what are the right sort, uh, sort of evaluation feedback that every individual needs so that we can actually increase the probability that each one of them is successful in completing their credential. Because if they're not, then we're not able to deliver on that promise of education, which is that credential is ultimately gonna be the key thing that you're gonna attain so that then you can actually attain the opportunity. And we're even investing more and more now in that kind of what I refer to as the last mile, these rising graduates. How are they actually accessing information about opportunities, employers and roles, et cetera? What kind of career enablement services are we are we providing and how are they utilizing them? Because we ultimately know that for that credential to have value, they have to acquire the opportunity as well. And so we're looking more and more at that as well. Um, so I would say that, you know, when you instrument that entire like student journey from prospect all the way to an employee, 
like there's if we can instrument in a way that we can that we can see and understand how they're experiencing it then we're going to actually instrument it so that we have that data and we can make informed decisions about it oh yeah yeah it sounds like you're far from asleep at the wheel right you have that data at your fingertips trend wise what are you seeing as far as students these days as far as how long does it take for them between enrollment and graduation what's that looking like yeah, one of the interesting things is even just during the pandemic that uh, uh, there's two things that are occurring, I would say. Uh, there, one is uh, the enrollment at WGU in particular is diversifying pretty significantly. And so historically, I'll just give you a couple tidbits of data around this. You know, five plus years ago, you know, the percentage of our students that were actually, uh, you know, un uh, traditional aged, meaning under the age of 22, uh, and seldom had credit, you know, credits to transfer in. Like that was only about 5% of our student population were under 22 and even less, like less than 3% were, would be considered a first time full-time student. But fast forward to today, uh, that number is about 12% of our uh, total enrollment. Uh, and the number of students that are now transferring in zero credits because they've had no prior college or they've not completed any prior courses is also increasing as a percent of total enrollment. And so we're seeing these individuals, they're just starting with, a, even if the time is variable, they're just starting with more credits that have to be completed before they actually attain a credential. And so that is increasing the overall average time that students at WGU are taking to complete their credential. Uh, not because necessarily that the students that we were serving before are taking more time themselves, just because the diversification of our enrollment. Uh, the other thing that we are absolutely uh, seeing is, is that the flexibility of time and pace is actually a real benefit when the pandemic significantly increased the pressures from family and caring for children, had disruptions to their jobs and to their economic situations, that our flexibility to let individuals kind of ebb and flow, like I can go fast and slow, like that also is changing the kind of, you know, cycle time, if you will, by which students are traversing their programs. And so we've seen that elongate a little, but not, uh, not substantially so that it's uh, dramatically impacting their cost to complete degrees at WGU uh, or their overall completion rates, et cetera. So we're seeing uh, those dynamics occur, but uh, back to our point is we're utilizing all that data about how different types of individuals who come in with different credits or start at different points and also learn in different ways. And we're now increasingly personalizing the journey so that we can also improve the outcomes for them as well. Ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention? It's time for us to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Get your ticket to Elucian Live for industry insights, powerful connections, and innovative solutions. From March 26th through 29th, join peers from around the world in New Orleans to unlock the possibility and drive student and institutional success. Learn more and register at elive.elucian.com. It's time to level up. The beginning of a new era in higher education begins with you. Order your copy of Commencement. The beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert, Dr. Joseph Lucio, with contributions by Elvin Freitas. It's higher education's must-read book of 2022. Discover how you can seize the moment to change higher education forever. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education, now available on Amazon. For bulk orders, contact Kate, Joe, or Elvin. No, that, that's a great model. And Joe, you've got to add the give them what they want. Yeah, oh, no, I've got this one instead. Oh, okay. Listen to my important question. <laughs> that's how I transition back to me.
Um, <laughs> Scott, Scott, I was waiting to use that one. I'll tell you. Um, time. Go to your website. And the first two bits on the hero image are about time. It's time and pace. And you brought that up. You just said it three or four times in different orders. And one of the points I make in the book um, that I wrote, shamelessly plugging uh, commencement at the beginning of a new era in higher education now, um, is that speed becomes more of a differentiator than anything else as we continue to move forward. Um, by and large, by and large, we are all we are all nonprofit institutions accredited by accreditors that are regional. Um, the sometimes the instructors that teach for one institution as adjunct teach for another. Now that's not to say that the educational quality from institution to institution is exactly the same. That's not what I'm saying. There are absolute differences in it. Um, I think a lot of those differences come from differences come from support. You know, an MBA course and an MBA course that teaches business is one better than the other, or is the support better, is the, the, the tools better, the technology better. So there's a lot of parity. It's kind of like a, a, you know, a field of 64 in the March Madness. There's a lot of parity. What differentiates one institution from the next? And in my mind, and I want to know if you agree, it's speed. It's the way that the institution responds to the student and the opportunities they give to the student to move faster, which is becoming more and more an expectation of life, right? Just mm -hmm. to flip your phone for three seconds and yeah. move video to video. What do you think about all that? Am I, do I know anything what I'm talking about? Or be kind. <laughs> the, uh, uh, that's like asking me to talk about social media and its influences like from someone who doesn't use uh, social media and, uh, um, I, who reads about its impact versus experiences right. its impact. Um, I think there is a, a a fairly strong conclusion that you're making there that there are differentiators that exist within institutions now that are on the basis of urgency or pace of response or speed of delivery, et cetera. And the reason I think that's true is because there is the most scarce resources that individuals have is in fact time. Um, and there there's a couple uh, uh, what's the conflicts that arise now, uh, increasingly so because of that. And one of those is just simple to call out that I'd highlight, which is the percentage of individuals enrolled in post-secondary programs today that are working learners and over the age of 24 is growing faster than those individuals who are traditional age, who are full-time, who have really no other obligations. They don't have dependents. They may be working part-time, but they may be still, you know, supported by families, uh, but they're reasonably unencumbered by other responsibilities the same way a working learner is who's over the age of 24. And that already is nearly approaching 45% and it's growing faster than the population that are traditionally aged uh, rising high school graduates, if you will. And when you consider the context of that individual is like, well, how many of them really have the luxury of four years arguably average time five years plus to complete a bachelor's degree so that they can advance their economic prospects. No one has that kind of time when you're working full time and you have a child and you have family, you're like, no one has that kind of time to say, oh yeah, let me just unplug from all those other obligations. And so what we as institutions need to be figuring out increasingly so, this is true for not just WGU, but everyone, how do you help individuals fit the acquisition of knowledge, skill, and ability, education, into their already busy lives? Mm. 
Well, yes. one of the ways in which you do that is you can compress time. And you can compress time in two ways. You can actually introduce short form credentials that have real market value. Second, you can actually make it possible to, for them to learn and acquire and demonstrate the proficiency at a pace that's, uh, that's commensurate with the knowledge, skill, and ability they already acquired through work and everything else. And so it would be false to, to compare an individual who is 18 years old and just finished high school who actually may need time to develop proficiency versus someone who already has 10 years of experience in a particular field for which they have no degree yet. You really want that you know, 10 year older individual to sit in a class for 16 weeks with three you know, lectures a week and say, oh no, both of you are gonna take the same amount of time to develop proficiency in this field. Mm. Like no way. I'm like, no you know, educator what? on the planet should be assuming that that would actually be the same experience. And yet, we have ourselves beholden to this model of credit hour, seat time, term, and that puts a lot of constraints on the speed and urgency with which institutions can respond to the ever-changing dynamics of the learners that they're serving. Before I send it you to, back to you, Pat, I wanna ask a Scott a personal question. Well, it's more of a leadership question, not a personal question. But I wanna know, Scott, let, let's put it like this. You have a job that many within higher education go, holy crap. Like how, how does it, holy crap. How does someone do this? The, the massive, what, 100, almost 200,000 students, a massive amount of employees. Um, you're in front of Senate committees and panels. You're leading some of the most innovative leaders in higher education. How has Scott changed over the last three years mm. since the last time you were on this podcast? This is not a pandemic-related question. It's a leadership-related question. You take it how you want it. How are you yeah. different now than you were three years ago? Uh, Joe, thank you for that question. I think it's uh, it's a really good one and one that allows me uh, some space a little bit to contemplate uh, the difference in the leadership approach that I have today versus what it was originally. I, there are two things at least come to my mind. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, I think about my primary responsibility as the president of WGU is to motivate and inspire our great people to do the great things they already want to do. And uh, I think that's actually the most important thing I have, meaning that's very different than saying, oh, I, as the leader, also have to dictate the strategy, I have to dictate all the priorities, the initiatives, all the activities and execution that we're doing. It's like, like, I'm not saying presidents don't get themselves involved in that, but my primary obligation is to motivate and inspire our great people to do the great things that I want to do. Why? Because uh, I mostly am trying to ensure that we are only increasing our alignment at emotional level with our mission and purpose at WGU. And if I start with the presumption is like every individual is at WGU because they believe in the purpose and mission of WGU to change lives for the better by creating pathways to opportunity. If we're all starting with that same premise, then I can trust that all of us are already trying to do the right thing. We're trying to think with the student in mind in all the things we're trying to do. We're trying to deliver against our key results of completion, return for graduates and equity in both. Like we are always, each one of us are striving to think about how are the ways that we have to do that and how do we need to do them differently, do them better, you know, stop doing certain things, et cetera, so that we deliver on that core purpose such that that's something I focus on more and more every day is like just motivating, inspiring our people to do a great thing. Now, the second thing uh, I think has been really important is, is that 
we are always advancing a culture of innovation at WGU. And this idea that in doing that, I think my, my responsibility has become increasingly not about directing where that innovation needs to occur, but asking good questions to help others unlock how they think about doing what we do. Uh, and a simple example is just how we are just, you know, contemplating the effect of time and how we've structured it. And you're like, well, what if we just thought differently about that? What if we think differently about delivering the value of a credential? What if we think differently about the mode of learning and the instructional model? How would we think differently? And that includes, by the way, a lot of conventional models of which we do things at WGU. And so I think what I'm trying to do there more and more is not uh, not try to provide the direction, if you will, but ask good questions so that the leaders and individuals across WGU can think differently about how they're doing what they're doing and even create new ways. You know, their innovation is, is two types, creating something entirely new that didn't exist before. And the second innovation is like, no, you're going to dramatically improve the way in which we're doing something already. Um, and we need to do both. Uh, and so in my role in that regard is not to say, hey, Scott just uh, divined a new you know, way in which we're supposed to do something. And now I need all of you to go execute it. You're like, actually, ah. no, I'm trying to say, hey, how do we think about this differently? What different angle and perspective do we take? What uh, challenging questions can I pose? So that those who are trying to answer the questions are realizing that maybe how we've done it for 25 years is not how we need to do it. And we're going to start doing it differently. That to me is actually where a lot of the fun happens because we're just going like, oh yeah, we're going to try this. We only have a 50-50 shot that's going to work, but we're going to do it anyway because we need to learn. And uh, we're, we're going to back to Pat's you know, point is like, we're going to get all the data about how we chose to do it and see whether it worked or not. And we're holding ourselves accountable to ensure that the innovation that we're driving is actually having impact. Otherwise, like I've said in, in congressional testimony, otherwise, it's like innovation that doesn't work is just a bad idea. And so we want to ensure that the innovation we're driving has more good ideas than bad ones. But you, we at least hold ourselves accountable to identify the bad ones as much as the good ones. And so anyway, so hopefully that That's gives you some perspective. As to, I love that. That was yeah. great. And you know, I love when somebody comes and I know so many leaders out there and innovators, so when somebody comes and says, you know what? we can do this different. Can we break this and rebuild it? It's like, yes. Yeah. You know right. what? Take the Play-Doh out, build something new. And Pat, you see this all the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. As an engineer, I, I live it too. Um, I want to go back to what you said, Joe, about speed, right? And the speed being the, the, the primary driving factor. Um, and I'd say speed probably has a cousin called flexibility. And flexibility is, is really what students want these days, right? I think we're seeing it. And, and Scott, you were certainly uh, alluding and talking about it, right? They want to be able to take a course wherever they want, whenever they want, however they want, given different mediums and, and whatnot. Um, talk to me a little bit. I'm, a, I'm My background, I actually was in a program called co-op, where I went to school for one term, scrounged up that money. You know, I didn't have somebody financing me. So uh, parents yeah. said, you want to go to school? Go, go get your money and, and put yourself through school. So I did. And then I signed up for that co-op program. So it was one term in school. And then I got recruited to United Technologies. And lo and behold, before I knew it, I was within three months in a great time. I was one of the senior guys there. Crazy people were leaving, going for other jobs and whatnot. That tight tie 
between university and community, especially the, the, the business side of it, the company side of it, where is that going, right? Is there, is there a day we're going to have sometime where you're getting credits for working? Is that a possibility? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the uh, uh, one, I love that. Uh, I, I nearly did something similar to what you did, at least for a term, but uh, I had learned about the co-op uh, when I was uh, in my undergraduate program, and I think it's an incredibly valuable model. Uh, the reason I say that is we also have programs in our health uh, school of health, as well as our school of education, where practicum, you know, clinicals and nursing, demonstration, teaching and teaching, like they're so fundamental to actually help the individual learn how to apply <laughs> the knowledge and skills that they acquired academically. Like, oh, you actually have to put them into application. I think that's partly even the approach to a Socratic method of learning is like, well, you may have all this information, but now we're going to test how well you apply it in a scenario. And so my hope is, is that we actually see the, the resurgent conversations about apprenticeships, the resurgence conversations around credit granted to work-based learning. You know, the resurgent conversation that we see around um, vocational credentials, vocational is a I'll, I could let me set that aside for a bit, but I want to talk more about that because we've done a disservice to even the thinking around vocation in the U.S. Because we've uh, oh, vocational tech was somehow different or a different you know you know pathway to opportunity that was uh, somehow constrained or different than the academic pathway. But all these resurgent conversation, my hope is is that it actually does deepen its roots into our dialogue around what the future learning to work life cycle actually has to look like. Because we recognize increasingly that if you move to skills-based model, then I as an individual am acquiring skills in all different types of experiences, academic ones, the work-based one, other experiential-based ones, military, for example. A skills-based model says, well, you have to award credit for the acquisition of skills regardless of where they're acquired because it's fundamentally about what you know, not how you came to know it. It's about the capability you have, not how you develop those capabilities. Now, interestingly, in an academic context, we still need to solve somewhat for the credit granting <laughs> to that knowledge and skill that's acquired in places that weren't academic in nature. The way we do that at WGU is our competency-based education model is that you can actually accelerate through courses in which you already have mastered that. And so other ways we do it is we articulate credit from a lot of different sources, including ACE, for example, that does a lot of credit granting to military experiences and others. What we need to go one step further, which is now direct granting of credit to work-based experiences. Well, the way you have to do that is you still have to introduce assessments beyond just observation. Uh, meaning, hey, I've seen this person do this work, et cetera. They seem good at it versus I also need to have assessments of that so I can have verification of that. And that's where even criterion-based reference assessments start to skill up or start to you know, take root. Think of just certifications exist in techni technical fields like CompTIA certifications or cybersecurity certifications by the NSA or NICE. Like those can exist and they can broaden and there's no like, there's no one precluded from being certified. Like I can sit for that certification having never gone through a single course at a university. It's like, great. And as soon as we get that verification of skills, like it makes it really easy to start attaching credit to that. That is gonna be a really good thing for increasing equity and equal kind of uh, you know, recognition of skill. 
uh, until then, we're still beholden to that degree as this very blunt force instrument that says somehow it's the only marker that someone possesses uh, knowledge, skill, and ability. And we know that's that's very limited. Uh, and so that's a long answer to say I'm still hopeful. I'm not certain yet. But I think that if the conversation turns towards action, then we'll get increasingly hopeful that that will take root. No, you know, but, Scott, but, yeah. um, it's it's been a while, but we do end our episodes with the same two questions of every guest. Um, and in fact, we wrote a book on one of them, right? <laughs> yeah. And we might do that again. And you might be in it twice now since you came out. How about that? Um, what else do we need to know about WGU that we didn't go over today? Could be something coming up, a conference you're attending, a new program you're launching. You want to just love on your staff for two minutes. The microphone is yours. Say whatever you want. Anything coming up, I, I don't care. It's it's yours to plug away. And either before or after, what do you see as the future for higher education? Yeah. Um, let me hit on two things. Uh, and what I think is uh, going to be really compelling about some of the things we're continuing to advance at WGU at an accelerated pace, and that's truly around personalization of learning. And there's two dimensions that, that I want to highlight, and it's really around student lifecycle management and the kind of flexible consumption model that we see uh, ever increasing need for because of how, again, the pandemic has catalyzed some of the things that we ourselves even saw. But Pat, I'll even go back to something you said, flexibility, like that still remains the core operative word here that says, you know, this is in higher demand now than it ever has been. And we know that if we invest in personalization in two particular areas, the modularity of curriculum, so the individuals are actually acquiring the, you know, the, the size of the credential that they need to advance their opportunity or their access to opportunity, is going to be changing and changing at increasing pace, such that we see degrees absolutely being increasingly valuable, but at the same time that we see the credentialing that's gonna uh, occur will be increasingly modular. What does that mean? We certainly see short form credentials increasing in value. We as a credit granting institution believe we can differentiate that in that way in a significant manner. Um, but we also know that that can't be a cul-de-sac and opportunity. Like you have to be able to build upon that. You have to be able to transfer it, stack upon it, et cetera. But we see that personalization coming. The other dimension of personalization is fundamentally about the student journey and the learning is that these individuals are going at different paces and different sequence of courses with different mentoring and, and instructional needs. And technology is playing a huge role in enabling our faculty to have those timely and relevant engagement with the students that they're serving so that we're seeing uh, an expectation of a dramatic increase in our completion rates and our you know, pace and progress rates. Uh, and ultimately, why are we doing that? Why? Because the diversification of the population of individuals that we're serving is going up dramatically. We love that because we do believe WGU fundamentally is uh, expanding access, especially to those historically underrepresented and underserved groups. And as we do that, they should have every expectation that their probability of success is the same as the individuals who may be from higher income strata or who may be their you know, white peers, if it's a you know, person of color, et cetera. Like, there should be, none of that is a determinant of your inherent worth and the probability that you should uh, succeed at WGU. And so we see that personalization of the journey being critical. Uh, on your second question, Joe, and the other thing is like, what gets us really excited about the future? It continues to be the skills-based architecture that we think it's fundamental to designing both the learning and the work in the future. 
Um, we're only, only at the beginning of this conversation, you know, only those early adopters. Uh, I see them as making an incredible moving declarative statements, whether it's, you know, Governor Hogan uh, in Maryland or whether it's the Federal Department of Labor or whether it's, you know, certain states saying we're going to skills-based hiring, but they're not yet enabled to do all of that, but they are making very clear direction setting statements that says, this is a future we believe in. We have tons of hidden talent and hidden workers out there. We need them more active and engaged in the opportunity that we know when they're engaged in the opportunity, it only expands it. We need to have a more uh, clear, consistent and equitable model by which we advance the capabilities of individuals and uh, open up opportunities to every individual, regardless of how, how they acquired their skills. And that is something that we believe WGU should be a key contributor to. Um, and so that's something I think we continue to be excited about as, a, as an influencer that certainly will benefit our operations as a you know, degree-granting institution, but we, we believe it's fundamental to uh, you know, changing and transforming the whole notion of the education to work life cycle, if you will. Wow. There was a lot there. There was a lot said between the three of us. Uh, you said most of it, Scott, which is why you're here, but uh, so insightful, so well put. Um, and you speak so well about access and affordability and the, the reach that higher education can have, the promise, the reinvigoration of higher education, of education in general. It gets all the passions. It gets passion with me cooking. I can't imagine how you're staff feels i could see why you're so inspirational to those that you work with and i know many of them and they all say great things about you and i'm like i know him it's fine <laughs> scott he's, my, he's like my buddy i call him on the weekends um somebody else i call on the weekends is my guest co-host this is the way it was supposed to sound he's pat casella executive director of the u.s distance learning association now i gotta cut it and put it at the beginning pat thanks for uh, co-hosting with me my pleasure joe did you have a good time here pat had a great time. And, and Scott, really, I, I, I should never put your name out there in the beginning. Joe will remind me, you know, <laughs> next time. But yes. um, yeah, I'm sure Scott and I probably could have sat here and talked for another couple of hours, right? It, it, we have the oh. same common interest. And like I said, our backgrounds are very, very similar on the engineering side. So oh, yeah. yeah, there's, uh, there's so much opportunity for innovation and advancement in this, uh, in this overall education workspace. Uh, we've only begun to, I think, scratch the surface in all the different ways in which we can actually change things for the better uh, and, and put increasingly uh, across the whole sector, put the student at the center as the primary beneficiary of our endeavor to expand access to high quality education so they can change their lives for the better. And the more we can put emphasis and focus on that, I think the more we'll see the whole sector really continue to transform itself for the future. And there he is, ladies and gentlemen. He's Scott Pulsifer. He is president of Western Governors University, the first president ever interviewed on the Up Experience podcast. Thank you, Scott, for being you. Your team offered you up for another hour. I was like, I don't know. Scott's <laughs> going to get tired of me. The sound effects are probably too much for him. So I was like, we should cap it at an hour. But I, I really do appreciate you and everything that you're doing in the industry to lead, uh, to show the way towards access. Um, to accountability, you know, for other institutions and, and to do it with such a good attitude and uh, um, authenticity, which I think is important in any leader today. Thank you for that, Joe. It's definitely been great to be with you. And uh, I'm certain we could always go longer, but uh, it's also for your viewing audience or your listening audience, sorry, uh, 
that it'll probably save them uh, some time and and uh, their own anguish, if you will, listening to us go on and on about what the future could be. But uh, it's been a real pleasure to be with you both. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some um, um, amazing news. It's time to work together to solve the puzzle of success in higher education. Belusian Live returns to New Orleans for March 26th through 29th to help you unlock possibility for your institution. And yes, the EdUp experience will be there recording live. Industry leaders from all across the world are converging to discover new insights, game-changing solutions, and powerful connections, all with the goal of addressing higher ed's greatest opportunities and biggest challenges. You do not want to miss Elusian Live. Learn more and secure your seat today at elive.elusian.com. It will be amazing. You know that the world of higher education is experiencing evolutions and revolutions. You want to be part of the progress. Commencement the beginning of a new era in higher education with insights from more than 100 college and university presidents will show you how. Get your copy of Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education now on Amazon right away. We think you're going to love it. It's amazing.